Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk with Giles and Sebastian Landry, the founders of Turnigan Hardcore, a production crew that produced Alaska-based snow machine videos throughout the early 2000s. From 2001 to 2009, Turnigan Hardcore, or THC, released eight videos that helped nurture some of the best snow machiners in the world. These riders were setting records and going bigger than anyone else in the industry at the time. More often than not, the stakes were high. And every year, they got higher. Bigger jumps, bigger tricks, and more serious consequences. Their thinking at the time was, if it can't kill you, no one's going to watch it. That was the key to the mentality that drove THC. They wanted the videos to be an example of what Alaskan snow machiners brought to the table. They wanted Alaskans to be proud to share the videos with anyone, anywhere in the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed to the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers and even baby onesies. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. If you're looking for other Alaskan podcasts to listen to, I recommend checking out the Alaska Wild Project. It's hosted by Daniel Boytrago, Brandon Fifield, and Jack Lau, and gives an inside look at Alaska outdoor lifestyles through casual conversations with people who are actively participating in them. Here's a clip from episode 35 with Kevin Dana, the owner of Barney's Sports Chalet in Anchorage. Have you ever heard of a caribou call? <laughs> Have you ever called in a caribou? <laughs> I mean, I've waved a game bag. That's kind of cool. Well, the, the cracking of the opening of a beer or cider works no just shit. the same as a white towel. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that. That's the that's the uh, caribou call, secret. the Alaska Wild Project caribou secret. call. Hmm. So, you know, come to find out, it happens to be a blacktail deer call. Oh, it works for blacktail deer, I swear to God. I mean, I don't know if it was the deer stopper or if it was the <laughs> the cherry lau. Oh, it was the cherry lau? Yeah, me, me, cherry lau. yeah me, and, me and Corman cracked open a cherry lau, like literally in sync, and it was like, oh, dude, it's going down. <laughs> 43 minutes later. Okay, back to Giles and Sebastian Landry. Turnigan Pass, from which Turnigan Hardcore gets its name, was home base. 
It's located about a half hour from Girdwood, where Giles and Sebastian live, so it was an easy commute. In the beginning, they would go out there with tape measures to measure distances from potential takeoffs and landings. They wanted to find spots where riders could go huge. But as the jumps and the consequences got higher, Giles and Sebastian made a point to find spots close to roads and cell phone reception. Thinking back to those times, they say that their biggest accomplishment was that they always brought everyone home. So here they are, Giles and Sebastian Landry. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! You know, I asked the crude Instagram what I should ask you guys, just because I know I have a lot of, uh, you know, motorsports, action sports people on there. And one question that I kept getting was, do you guys still drink Miller High Life? <laughs> uh, every once in a while, not too much anymore. Like, uh, I don't even know if they sell it down at the Tesoro anymore. In Girdwood. Yeah, it's kind of, I don't think Miller High Life really realized what we were doing for them. You know, they were just like, oh, well, you know, and they'd give us, you know, a little bit of money here and there. But like, they didn't, I don't think they realized how much of an impact we had on, on that brand. <clears throat> and we honestly just started drinking it because that's what our grandparents always had in the, uh, in the, in the garage. So we'd steal it when we were, you know, in high school. <laughs> And that was kind of the mascot for turning in hardcore, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, especially like, uh, you know, like when we go out of state or whatever and, you know, people be a little bit confused about who and what we are, you know, uh, back then the culture around like um, marijuana was a little bit different. So mm -hmm. they were a little bit tripped out and like didn't realize what THC stood for, apparently. So there was some confusion that way, but everybody likes drinking beer. And when you guys came up with that name, was it just like, like an epiphany and you guys were like, oh my gosh, like we can do THC, Turnigan Hardcore. We could, you know, like there was so many different options. Well, it, it's weird. It came up b before we started making movies. I was at um, the Mount Baker um, slalom and this is back in the days when the chandelier was still going and I think we we're. I was down there with Jason Sellers, and um, I was partying. Well, I think we were at um, Tex Davenport's house, and uh, he grew up with uh, the what was that the the Ford Granada Hardcore FGHC, crew. FGHC Ford Granada Hardcore. And then there was the Mount Baker Hardcore, and it just kind of came to me when we were just sitting around all boozed up. I was like, "Yeah, well, we're Turnigan Hardcore," and then I was like, "Oh wow, that actually works a bunch of different ways." And then when we finally started making movies, where it's like, "What are we going to call this thing?" and we're just like, "Well, Turnigan Hardcore." But but the High Life films part though, because we'd been drinking High Life before, and. We, I don't know where it kind of started from, but maybe it was our dad sent a, a framed photo of something, and that's kind of kicked off a collection of us having uh, high life memorabilia. So that's where the the high life films came from. Is we already had a collection of of high life memorabilia. Mm -hmm. And 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 real quick, it kind of sounds like uh, one of you guys were like maybe tapping your foot or 
maybe moving around or maybe accidentally bumping the bottom of the table. Yeah, sorry. That was I was just pushing up a, a, a bottle of booze out of the side of the way. <laughs> sorry. sorry. No worries, dude. <laughs> you know, so so I have this list of people who I know I have to get to on the podcast. I started it years ago, and you guys were actually among the first names I wrote down on that list. Um, I knew I had to to get the story of Turning It Hardcore on the podcast. You know, to me, you guys are part of that period of time in Alaska where there were so many cool things happening. You know, there was Borderline, there was Northern Border, Turning It Hardcore. It was like Alaska was its own sovereignty when it came to uh, snowboarding, snow machining, you know, action sports. Yeah, it was a good time for sure back then. It was uh, seemed like it was limitless and... Um, you know, the, there was just so many maniacs, but, but do you remember that? I think it was snowboarder magazine had, um, was it Chris Courier was writing that thing where every month and when Jihad. Came, is that what it was called? Yeah. I think it was yellow snow before it was that. And then it became media Jihad and then, or maybe it was the other way around because of the nine 11 attacks. Maybe, yeah. So they, so they took Jihad out. Maybe, but I remember when he wrote about us in there, I remember that's when I was like, sweet, I've kind of made it into a, like Alaska, you know, snow, snowboard world or whatever. And he likened us to a motorcycle gang cruising around up at Turnigan, giving people <laughs> rides everywhere. And I always, I really wish I would have saved that snowboarder magazine. So when, when you first saw that, I mean, what, what did you think? Did you think like, okay, this is, you know, this Turnigan hardcore thing is, is a real thing now that it's getting recognition or... Uh, well, I, I don't really. Uh, do you, what, did it come out before the movies? Yeah, I yeah, think it came out before we started producing movies, and so we we're like, "Whoa!" Like, it just seemed weird to see your name in print back then mm -hmm. in a you know a national a published magazine. Back when magazines were like you know it was a big deal, and uh, yeah, we because uh, we'd see uh, JB Deuce around, and we'd we'd hang out with those guys a little bit, and you know check them out for sure, and. But they were just they were just different than we were. Mm -hmm. You know, we were more into like, um, well, we were just into the other side of the road. We were into the to the motor side. Yeah, and that was the thing that was weird because when we'd take snowboarders out and pick them up at the house and at their houses here in Girdwood to go, you know, do whatever we were going to do, most of the snowboarders were actually terrified of, of snow machines. I mean, absolutely terrified of them. If you'd give it to them, they usually got it stuck, would hike back, didn't know what was going on. And it kind of felt like a, when Courier said that, it kind of felt like a, I don't know, like a, I don't know, just like you were finally getting a little bit of respect on the other side of the road. Mm -hmm. I think he called us like the Hell's Angels of Turnigan. It might have been. And which we thought was funny at the time because we were riding with Jesse Cross all the time and, uh, and his parents, his dad, his dad at the time was the um, the president of the of the the motorcycle club, and uh, so then they started doing our um, our hoodies and all our soft goods. Oh, that's awesome! I didn't know that. Yeah, so we'd go to the the clubhouse, the clubhouse, and go go deal with our orders, and um, you know, and hang with uh, with his family, and there'd always be some you know some bikers hanging out, and so. You know, we'd hang with those guys, and uh, it's just, it just a funny mix. You know, earlier you said that um, you mentioned respect, 
and that that piece that Courier wrote in Snowboarder kind of helped garner that respect. Could you talk a little bit more about maybe like that lack of respect? Like you, you guys didn't feel respected in what you were doing? Well, we never, I don't think we ever really felt um, lack of respect, but one thing what, what we always did was if we were going to put out a movie, we wanted to um, show Alaska, like we wanted to be number one. Like we're not from Alaska. We, we grew up in California and we moved here in the mid nineties. And so we kind of were, felt kind of like outsiders here a little bit, not like, you know, not like you would at, at certain places, but I mean, we weren't Alaskan at that point. And, but we never wanted to let Alaska down. Like we wanted people to like buy our movie and like be able to play it anywhere and be like, yeah, we're, we're the best. We're the gnarliest. We're going to do whatever it takes to make, to, to put us on the map. Because back then Alaska was just basically the king of the hill. I wouldn't say just to put us on the map, but to be on top. Yeah. We wanted to be on top. And, you know, not, maybe not on top in the whole snow machine and whole snowboard world, but definitely on the age of 16 to 27-year-old riders where it's, you know, there's it's not – well, there's a lot more that's considered you got to have to put it on the line instead of just, you know, I, you know you have to get you have to get gnarly. But basically, it's who could get the gnarliest. We want, Yeah, basically, we wanted – we wanted anybody that bought our movie from Alaska to be proud to, to stick it into any VCR or DVD player anywhere and be like, yeah, this is where this is what we're about. Mm -hmm. But on the same level of respect, both, you know, I think my brother and I also kind of, you know, to a lot of it, I mean, sometimes to a little bit to our detriment, I would say I live on the, you know, the code of being respectful, you know, whether it's sometimes it can come off as a little bit, a little bit psycho, I guess, but, um, <laughs> you know, it definitely is one of the things, you know, that, that guides us, I think. In what way did it come off psycho? Mm, overly protective, I guess, of our, of what's ours. Okay. You know, what's our cruise, you know, and, yeah, we were all in. If we went anywhere with anybody that we were riding with, we treated them like a star, even if they weren't, uh, you know, on the A gang, even if they were lower riders that were in the friend segment, you know, we had their back at all times. We felt, you know, everybody that was riding with us had basically the same, you know, we were, we were all in, you know, and I always kind of like that because some of the kids, you know, especially when the first few years were like, yeah, you know, I'm People, oh, well, you guys are, you know, this, that, or the other. And I always just, you know, the, the, the kids that we were filming with were, some of them still weren't even 21. And, you know, so they're living at home and they're telling their parents that we're like, you know, uncles to them, you know. And that was always like, well, well that's, you know, that's exactly what we're kind of going for. You know, we want to be those people, you know, guide, you know, be the guides. You know, we're out there guiding kids that basically didn't have much experience in the backcountry through the backcountry, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we brought everybody home, you know, and that was that was always the goal. Like, no, no one was going to be, we weren't going to let anybody get um, die in an avalanche. We weren't going to leave them if their sled broke down. We weren't going to move on to greener pastures if you know somebody was having sled problems. We'd jump in, fix their sleds, tune them, make them go faster, um, get them what they needed to be successful. Is there a reason that you guys took that on? that you, you wanted to be the uncles. You wanted to kind of uh, exemplify maturity and parenthood. 
Well, we were just proud of Turnigan and, you know, and when we started riding there, you know, it was like your uncle was there, that crew, uh, like Kinney, uh, Martin Molyneux, Ba, the, um, the Valley crew, Mobley. And so it was like a tighter group of people there, you know, so that culture was kind of already there. If you know much about the surf culture is, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's tribalism, you know, for sure. So, um, a lot of that comes from us growing up in, in the surf culture for sure. Cause you know, I don't, well, maybe it's Californian. I don't know, but it's surf culture for sure. I mean, you're definitely washed out by, by the older guys and, and, and smacked around if you don't, if you, you know, if you do something not, uh, out of line, out of line. Mm-hmm. So when did you guys get into snow machining? Um, I got into it in, I think it was 97. I bought a sled and we were, we were still hiking at that point. We just moved to Alaska and I saw somebody drive. We hiked up the front side of Turnigan and we, I seen somebody drive up it on a snow machine. And I was just like, that's the future right there. I, I just recognized it right off the bat, went out and bought one, uh, the following winter. And, um, <laughs> it's classic. I got, my brother's like, I, I get the thing, I get all dressed up. I think I need to be dressed super warm. He's like, all I know, and it was a snowstorm when we went out there. All I know is there's a creek right down there. Don't get stuck in it. I drove right into the creek, was stuck in there for like three hours. If I could have returned <laughs> that sled, I totally would. I was like, fuck these things. These things, are, these things are lame. And But gradually, you know, I got better. And real, and I think you went to Mexico that winter, right, to go surfing? Yeah, yeah. And so I stayed here and just snow machined and just really fell in love with snow machining. And, um, and yeah, and then I just really, I mean, just dove as deep as I could into snow. Like, I rode every single day that it was clear. Um, we'd go up and build. And we were mostly using them back then for snowboarding. And then just kind of just uh, – well, what was a big game changer for us is we were on a that next year we were on a surf trip down to California and I was at a motocross shop and ran across a uh, a Sledneck's video the very first Sledneck's and bought that and watched that and was like whoa well like you know because we didn't grow up around motors we were surfing and skateboarding but if you don't know too the Jay. How he got into Sledneck's was actually through snowboarding first. He had we owned some of his old snowboarding movies. I don't know what we did with them now, but that's what he first put out. Yeah, Jay from Sledneck's, not your yeah. uncle. Yeah. And so, Sledneck's was um, influential in you guys starting turning in hardcore. Then. Yeah, basically, because we were just gonna, we were thinking we were gonna make snowboard movies, and I started really getting into snow machining. And saw that movie and was like, whoa. So we, you know, instantly have had to go out and learn how to do Supermans. And uh, I don't think I was ever limber enough to do hill clickers. But uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we, we were just like, wow, that's that's where we want to go. We were riding more like surfboards. We were our snow, you know, like cruising them and ride, ripping pow and doing that. And then when we saw those guys jumping them, we were you know, we'd been jumping them, but not throwing tricks. Yeah, tranny to tranny jumps was, you know, we were just jumping them downhill, not jumping, you know, tranny to tranny jump, jump, you know, jumping doubles and stuff like that. Do you guys remember that that first jump? Probably Kyle. Well, I think our first jumps were at the bottom of uh, of Main Bowl, Kyle's Corner, it used to be called, yep. just a windlip, and 
if you know anything about snow machining, like Alaska's just set up so perfectly for um, learning how to jump snow machines just because there's so many wind lips. No trees. Yeah. You know, you said that you got into snow machining in 1997. I wonder if you could kind of think back to that time and maybe what did the scene look like? The scene was hilarious. There was nobody there. Like that was what my main attraction to Turnigan was. It was since we'd come from surfing, it was crowded already. And this was in the you know late eighties and early nineties before it got really crowded. And I was just like, wow, this place is wide open. It seemed endless. Turnigan used to seem huge. And we, you know, we were getting 1200 inch years back to back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so we just, uh, that was my, my immediate was, uh, the scene was cool, you know, cause Marty Mobley was up there. Um, like I said, you know, and the older crew. And so we just started riding with whoever was there. The other thing that I always liked about, about, well, all motorsports and you wouldn't think it's like this in motorsports. But motorsports might be one of the friendliest sports to be around. It is amazing if you show up to Turnigan or any motor parking lot, I don't care if it's at a dirt bike track or anything, it may seem really intimidating, but as long as you go up there and do your thing, if something happens, everybody's there to help. I mean, it is when you break down, there's actually people there that will help you. It's, it's kind of an amazing, and that it was a lot more like that back then because the sleds at that time were straight junk. I mean, they were terrible. I mean, when my brother first blew his first belt, the the, the store didn't even sell him an extra belt on an old 670 Summit sled, which is just ridiculous to send somebody in the backcountry without a backup belt. And, you know, didn't I believe this is the story is my brother rolled up to some woman that was up there with her boyfriend. He's like, hey, my sled's not really running that good. And she just said, you know, if I were you, my husband always says, or boyfriend, whatever it was, uh, always check your belt first. And he's just like, well, where the hell's the belt? <laughs> 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 and yeah, so that that's, you know, in the beginning, the scene up there was very, very helpful because the, the sleds were so junky. Back then, a lot of people were running mod sleds and doing all. I mean, even the handlebars were lame when you got them. I mean, you'd take your handlebars off and put motocross bars on them, and then you didn't have heated grips on there, so they're more uncomfortable. And you know, the ergonomics of them were terrible. And you know, they were they're piles of junk. They're hard to keep running. You, you know, you had to keep your fingers in there. Your fingers were always greasy. Now the only time you get grease on them is when you put oil in them. I mean, they 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 were terrible. It sounds like back then you guys didn't really understand or a lot of people didn't understand like the anatomy of a snow machine. Like, like you went up to the mountain and by today's standards, it's, uh, you know, you're not ready. You're, you're unprepared up on the mountain. Completely. Completely. They weren't made for Alaska at that point. But I mean, at that point too, like when you'd go up there, even carrying, we used to literally drag people, put one person behind you, or no, sorry, it was two people on one rope, right? Yeah. Isn't that yeah? So we drag people with two with two people up driving with holding onto a rope like you're like water skiing or something. Yeah. I mean, it was as ghetto as could be. <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. I mean, then we'd run through belts. Yeah. I mean, nobody really understood and didn't understand the function. We didn't. Yeah. We just didn't really have a, a true handle on the grasp of, you know, what these things can do and how to really use them. Mm-hmm. And when did you guys pick up a camera? 
that was another surf trip. We were surfing at uh, this place called Halama, uh, just north of Santa Barbara. And uh, this guy, we we came into the shore, and this guy's like, "Hey, I was filming you guys surfing. You guys want to check it out?" So he shows us the video footage, and it was on a GL1, which was the first three chip camera that we'd ever seen. And we were like, "Whoa, wow, that's that's pretty good footage," you know, because before that, those high eights, mm-hmm. they just weren't that good. You know, it made everything look, especially at distance. Yeah, it didn't look, and so we were we were like, "Well, we're gonna go get one of those." Because even before that, before I, when we wanted to start making movies, I had bought a a Bolex um, 16 millimeter film camera, and was just struggling with it because the internet was new, like where to buy film, where to uh, where to get it developed, the process, how to digitize it. It it was it was kind of out of my grasp at that point. And then uh, so we find the this, this this GL1, and went out and bought one and. Then it was off to the races. Do you remember the the first thing you guys filmed, snow machine wise? Uh, you know, it was pretty random. We showed up uh, opening day to turn again, and um, with the new GL one, we're ready to film. We didn't even know how to use the thing yet. I mean, we just turned it on and started pointing it. Auto, auto, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we ran into Kyle Armburst, and. Um, he was what was he 15 14 or 15 years old and he was up there with his dad and he had just got a new summit and we were like whoa this kid's gnarly and so we filmed with him that day i think it was opening day i'm pretty sure it was and uh so that was basically our first film subject was was um was kyle armburst oh that's great because the one thing that's kind of weird about it, when you first get a camera, you really don't understand, or at least I didn't, since I had absolutely no film background, never taken photos, I mean, you know, nothing like that, is is actually how tricky it is to, to capture the moment. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, because you come home and you're so excited to show something and you're like, man, this this is weak. This isn't what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not until you turn the corner and you get some uh, subject or something that you can really wrap your brain around to, to start, you know, extracting something that you really want to see. Yeah, and, and Kyle was perfect for that at that time because he was, like I said, he was so young and he he would hit a jump a hundred times. You'd shoot it from every angle. I mean, you sh- you'd shoot it so much that you're sick of shooting it. <laughs> you got the shot. Yeah, he wouldn't even worry about it. He was just like ready to just keep going and going and going. I mean, he would run. He'd run two tanks of gas. He didn't care. You know, Andy looked cool because, you know, I mean, at that age, you're into looking cool. So, you know, he was wearing, what was that, the flying Hawaiians, yellow pants. And, I mean, yeah, he he looked good, you know. It looked good on film. It wasn't just black. So when does the first Turnigan Hardcore video come out? That came out in 01, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah 01. And we, uh, when we, when we, when we uh, did the movie, we were just thinking, oh, we'll just, um, We'll just show it at the Sitzmark and have a few friends there, drink some beers, and and have you know just do a small little premiere for friends and family. And um, what well, in the process of making the movie, we couldn't figure out how to do uh, rolling credits. And um, we were introduced to a guy named Cliff Sonatag, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, maybe I'll give you guys a hand." We'll, we'll see. Let me see what you guys got. And so we dropped off a copy of what we had done and he immediately watched it 
and his little brother's like, holy shit, these jumps are humongous. And uh, so he calls us up. He's like, yeah, I definitely want to work with you guys. And so he he did like the te- the really technical stuff, like um, well, what we thought at the time was technical, like compression and the rolling credits. And um, he graphics. What's that? He put on. Oh yeah, and the graphic package, and then built us a uh, a website. I don't know if you ever remember the Turning and Hardcore website, which was classic for shit talking. But so anyway, so he does that, and we're like, well, shit, this is like this thing's this is actually a pretty good movie. When everyone started watching, we're like, wow, this is this is actually pretty good. And so we're like, all right, well, let's let's maybe let's maybe have a, a premiere downtown. And at that time, renting the Fifth Avenue Theater was relatively cheap, and so we did. And it's we sold we sold out two shows, and next thing we know, we're on the map and we're off and running. I think it's the Fourth Avenue Theater, isn't it? So yeah, Fourth, Fourth Avenue. Avenue. He, what he's saying because yeah. we're working on Fifth Avenue right next to it right now. And that I remember that uh, that was the spot. You know, that was where all the borderline premieres were, or a lot of them were there for sure. And so it was kind of like. Um, it was kind of just what you did, but now that, you know, it is what it is and it's just kind of shut down and it's going through, you know, these different motions of, is it going to be closed down? Is it going to be bought? Is it going to get historical status now? I mean, at least I look at it like this, like, Oh, what a, what a great place to have been able to have those, like those really kind of pivotal moments in your life, you know? Yeah. I mean, we'd go to the borderline premieres there. Those were awesome. I mean, we get to watch, uh, Borkstead dress up as Britney Spears and do his thing. And, <laughs> yeah, those are big for us too. I mean, those, you know, those were some important times for us. You know, that was kind of when we were starting to see like, you know, hey, how crazy Alaska actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, living down here in Girdwood, we didn't know most of those borderline kids. You know, because there was kind of a separation, you know, back then, you know, you didn't know the, the Anchorage kids, you know, we only knew the, the Girdwood snowboarders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Sammy, Lubkey. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, Sammy was what, eleven then? Yeah, <laughs> or maybe even younger. He was young. And going to the borderline premiere is like a, uh, you know, baptism by fire. You know, like you, you you get to experience everything all at once, everyone all at once. Yeah, well, you know, but a little bit when you say the baptism by fire, we were a little bit older at that point, and so like it wasn't. Because, I mean, I'm sure you've talked to people about how intimidating Borderline used to be with people. And, you know, we never really got that because we were, you know, by that time we were 25 years old. So it was like, mm-hmm. you know, what some 16-year-old kid's going to intimidate you? You know, you just smack them. <laughs> you know? yeah. And we, yeah, we'd grew, grown up going to surf shops and, and skate and, and surf shops premieres and, and stuff like that. And so it was it was just, an, it was seemed totally natural. Yeah, totally. And, and like you said, surfing, I think... Um, you know, surfing is kind of gnarly. Surf culture is, is kind of gnarly. Like you said, the, the old heads, like if, if, uh, you know, you say or do something around them that they don't like, or you, you disrespect them on purpose or by accident, like you're going to get hit. Yeah. Yeah. Especially back then before camera phones. Yeah. Camera (laughs) camera phones have ruined that a little bit for sure. For sure. (laughs) So what was it like filming for turning in hardcore? Um, was there a routine or was it like, Let's go out to this zone and see what we can get. Um, at first, it was uh, there was no real routine. We uh, we would just call up. Who, we had this big phone list of writers, you know, that we'd meet, um, and so we we just go start calling people. Hey, you guys want to go ride today? And then um, 
what really separated us was uh, our willingness to uh, build jumps. Like we really, we, we knew what we wanted. We wanted amplitude. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically the routine, because we wouldn't, we just would take the winners off and make these movies. So we, um, a lot of days my brother and I would go out when it was like marginal and we knew we really couldn't shoot and we wouldn't call anybody and we'd drive around Turnigan with our 100 foot tapes. That tape we, measures. Yeah, tape measures that we use for work. And mm-hmm. um, and we'd measure out stuff that we thought was like doable or whatever and we'd start building jumps and we'd him and I would literally build jumps just him and I in the backcountry and get them tuned up for the weekend. And then we had kind of had who in mind that we were like, Hey, let's come out here and hit this thing. And you'd roll out there and you'd, you know, you'd go down the list of like, Hey, who do you want to go with? Who, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they'd show up and they'd be, sometimes they were like, hell no, I'm not hitting that thing. You know, that that's hell no. And then other times they were like, yeah, it's on. And, um, and then as soon as you do that, you, you know, that changes everything. Cause then it kind of puts the hype on. Cause people like, you know, back, you know, back then there wasn't cell phone coverage so, or any, you know, photos of anything. So, you know, how people come back in the backcountry with disposable cameras. I mean, it was that archaic mm-hmm. and, you know, you'd go out there and they'd clear it and, you know, the talk would be on, the talk would be on and you'd get these phone calls at night. Cause I think, I think the very first year that we did turning, turning hardcore one, neither of us owned a, a, a cell phone, if you can believe that. So everything was done on a home phone. Which to nowadays, when I think about that, seems amazing that we could actually communicate with seventeen to twenty-four year old kids on a, not having a cell phone, calling their, yeah, calling seems, their parents and leaving a message. You know what I mean? Seems wild. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You know, and um, and so then then you know the, the hype would be on because it was like, oh yeah, there's this huge jump out there, and you know then, but then other groups of Anchorage kids or, or even Girdwood, whatever, would show up and be like, you know, they're heavy hitter of the group, and then you know, they'd step up and be like, hey, you know, I want a part of this thing. And, you know, that was kind of the deal is we were never people to shun people. We were always like, man, if you want to get gnarly, we're here to film people getting gnarly. That is for sure. Yeah. You know, I don't really care what you, you know, it was never, you know, it was never, it was basically who, who could get over it was in, who, who didn't, you know, yeah, you, you're now you're on second team. Mm-hmm. But on the same thing on that, when I say second team, I think that's one of the things that really helped us is there was kids that we, literally drug around with us in the backcountry for multiple years before they became good enough to actually make segments, which I always love because people are like, man, why do you waste time with those people? And then, you know, two years later, they've got a full segment and are gnarly, you know, cause like a 16 year old kids, you know, sometimes at 16, you're not, you don't look like a man, but some 16 year olds actually look like men. And so it's a total disadvantage. You know, you even see that in snowboarding. Mm-hmm. You know, you may not have the weight to get over something, but, you know, in a couple of years, you have the mindset and actually have seen it over and over and over. You're going to get over them and be able to trick them. And so when you guys would take out these these 16-year-olds, um, what would they do? Would they just kind of like hang out with you guys while you filmed or what? Yeah, they'd hang yeah. with us. And uh, we, when we were rolling with the kids that were under 18, we, had, we made them bring their parents. Like even uh, Corey Davis, uh, mm-hmm. I think he started filming with us when he was 15. Yeah, but he didn't have to go because we sent him with uh, Paul and those guys. Oh, he yeah. He did have – he was chaperoned. His dad didn't go, but his dad ended up coming with us a few times for sure. But, yeah, so we'd, we'd make sure that their parents were on board. And then, yeah, we'd, we'd watch over them like hawks because, you know, 16-year-old kids in the backcountry, um, you don't know what they're going to do or what they're what's, – what's even going on in their mind. Mm-hmm. And real quick, I wanted to get back to, to something you said – just a bit ago that you take that you both would take the whole winter off to film the video is that right 
Yeah. yeah. So, so this was like, you know, your, your winter job. So yeah, we, we would take the winters off um, from our regular job. We're iron workers by trade. And um, yeah, we treated it like a job, even though at first it wasn't really a money making thing. You know, we were making some money, but not a lot. And um, so we, uh, we just, well, it was like drug dealing. All the money you got, <laughs> you spent. I mean, it was like, there was no, like, I mean, we weren't having big come ups. I mean, yeah, we, you know, paid for a lot of fuel and got a lot of oil. But I mean, one year we ran through just personally, I think that was in 02, was it 02 or 01? I think it was our second year. We ran through 55 gallons of oil through our sleds. So, I mean, you know, the costs are way, way up there. You know, so yeah, what we were making, we were spending. It was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, because it wasn't like, you know, we were making these huge checks or anything like that. It was never done like that. We probably could have done a lot better if we would have gone outside and tried to sell ourselves. But we just kind of had this connection to Alaska and just wanted to, you know, just stay up here. You know what's really great about about that mentality is that it's not about money. It's about the culture. It's about the experience. It's about um, helping to define something that's that's relatively brand new you know in alaska yeah yeah i think i think it's kind of i think it's kind of missing right now you know because one of the things that i wish that was happening in the snow machine world in alaska is i wish there was a little bit more head-to-head competition on you know anchorage against you know kenai against against fairbanks you know and i'm not saying like you know you got to hate each other but you know this is this is alaska's sport you know we are we are arguably on top some years, you know, we have some really, really good riders up here. And, you know, I like seeing that, you know, and like you're saying a scene that's with that's kind of missing right now. And you think that that competition is integral to that? Oh, for sure. For sure. A- absolutely. That's, I mean, outdoing one another is always, I, I think huge. Yeah. It's a one up sport for sure. Yeah. All motorsports are. Well, all, all sports are. I mean, yeah, all sports. You want to one-up somebody, for sure. Yeah. You know, even we do it with our cameras. I mean, I'd come home when, when we shoot, my brother and I shoot head-to-head against each other during the day. I mean, yeah, we're on the same team. And at the end of the day, when somebody gets a really good shot, you're pretty stoked. But in the back of your mind, you're like, fuck, man, I got to go out there and, and, you know, get something better. Mm-hmm. You know, Friendly I like competition. To, I, I, yeah, I live for that. I mean, that's that's very, very important in my world. You know, I feel like there are those certain riders who pull out all the stops when the camera comes out, like they know it's time to perform. Do you remember anybody being like that in the THC crew where, you know, one of you guys pulls out the camera and now it's time to go big? Oh, yeah. Well, we looked for that. Like that was that was those are the guys that we we looked for. You know, it started with Kyle. He was definitely like that. Um, Jimmy Blaze, he was like that. He was a total stunt man. Like his best jump of the day would be his the very first jump. Like he could just show up cold, hit it, and just and go home. Yeah, he was he was good. And um, all the way, Dan and Randy were like Dan um, Dan and Randy. Um, who came after that? Oh, Corey Davis, um, and then you know, and then Dane Ferguson when he showed up on our radar. That was a big game changer. Mm-hmm. Like he was, he was exactly what we were looking for. Gritty, you know that's yeah, gritty. But no, I'd, I'd say most of the, the most of the guys that had full segments, it, they knew it was, 
it only took one or two times filming with us before they realized they'd even work with you. You know, it was like, Hey, this is what we want to see. This is how we want to do it. You know, slow down. You know, we don't want to miss anything. You know, we're here to make you look good. We're not here to, you know, we want, you know, we want the very best out of you. And it only take one or two times. And when they'd come over and watch the footage where you'd be like, yeah, you know, if I could have moved over here, that's what I'm going for, but you went for it. And you know, that's when that changed. And then for some reason, I think a lot of those kids talk to each other and be like, hey, you know, you want these best clips, you know, pay attention a little bit, you know, because mm -hmm. we're not just shooting for like, you know, oh, hey, here's the jump, you know, like, yeah, we want the sun in it. We don't want the sun in it. You're going from, you know, sun to shade to sun. Like we need to set our cameras up for that, you know, and mm -hmm. and most of the kids, they, they knew how to do that. And yeah, the, the, the kids that had standout performances, they were always up for, they knew when the camera came out, it would, you know, step it up another notch. But slow down too, for sure. Slow down. Be smart about it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. Work. Communicate, communicate with your with your photographers. That way, like, you know, we can move around. Be you know, a we pro. weren't going to just post up under the jump and drink beers and hold a camera in our hand. We were moving around with with tripods and and doing it as professional as we knew how. Mm -hmm. um, so I think most most of the kids that we film with, they as soon as that camera came out, they knew it was time. And they'd even change, you know, you'd show footage of them and, you know, of course, everybody in the parking lot looks good in a, a black hoodie and, and black pants and a black helmet and stuff. But then when you show them that footage compared to someone that's dressed in, I don't want to say neon and all, you know, snow crossed out. But if you kind of look a little bit more, you know, popping, you know, snowboard style, it's going to come out looking better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that I always liked that when the kids would be like, yep, I brought my one red hoodie to film in you know and they'd be yeah, riding yeah. around in black the whole time and then when it was time to hit that big one they'd strip down and be in like a red t-shirt or a red hoodie you know get gnarly for four minutes <clears throat> which looks like a lot of time during the day but it's not you know so the kid most of those kids aren't really riding like that you know they're mm -hmm. just in that you know and then you know they look better you know and that's what you're going for you're trying to make everybody look cool well especially in alaska where you know the weather is so inclement and it can just be socked in so often yeah yeah because i mean we really didn't we would barely even get shots until after the super bowl you know so a big part of our season up here is almost unshootable you know because i don't know how snowboarding works up here but i mean there's really not enough sun until you know basically this this weekend of the year yeah you know you know super bowl used to be this weekend or whatever but yeah it's you know about this time of year when you get enough sunlight on stuff to really you know get a clips how often did you guys take people out and they were intimidated and maybe they didn't mesh with the crew? You want to take this one on Levi the Valley? <laughs> no, you better take this one. <laughs> and Levi, I mean, I, I'm, we'll put it out there right now. He's, I think he's the best snow machiner that's, that I've ever worked with. That guy is straight gnarly. But when he first came up here, I don't know how we got a hold of him or whatever. I went down to a snowcross. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And he, in Minnesota. Yeah. And he's a Minnesota boy and he's from Longview. And if you imagine any place called Longview, it's flat. It's not because you're on a hill. <laughs> and uh, he came up with, what? do you remember the guy that he came up with? Uh, Brian Kafka? Or is no. something Kafka? Yeah. Well, Chris he, Kafka. Chris Kafka. And um, so they came out and they're all stoked to be here and everything. And we go out to turn again and you know, we've got our whole crew with us and, and they're, they're just chomping at the bit to meet Levi and they go out and they're just smashing the jumps. I mean, smashing them. And Levi's, you know, he's not like, he definitely wasn't standing out, 
for that's you can count that for sure and um so he's driving home and he's talking to somebody back home and he's like dude the guys up here are gnarly man this is this is that was a crazy day we got to step our game up and i remember like that that's when i kind of realized like well there's a lot of intimidation to just hop off the airplane or whatever mm-hmm. and come out here when there's a bunch of kids you've never even heard of that are hitting these jumps at 90 miles an hour and most of the jumps are over 100 feet like dude you you better like come you better get ready to get crazy because if not, you know, you're going to get smashed. And that was the first time that I was like, wow, this could be really, really intimidating to show up, you know, (laughs) you know, you better get your game on. Yeah. Yeah. It almost seems like it is similar to, you know, you reading that, that piece in snowboarder that courier wrote where you're like, okay, there's some recognition here. And then in this situation, you know, this guy, lands in Anchorage, goes out to turn again, and he's like, he's good. You know, there's no debating whether or not he's good, but then he sees the good guys in Alaska, and he's like, shit, they're really good. Yeah, yeah. And and the other thing, too, you know, that you, you kind of have to – they don't see, and we call it putting our jumps on steroids. And a lot of the jumps that we've – you know, you've seen our movies. A lot of the jumps mm-hmm. are – we shoot the same jumps over and over – is at the beginning of the year, those jumps are actually pretty small and they get built and they get overbuilt and built and built and built. And then by the end of the season, a lot of those kids that don't maybe don't have the skills to come out there on the very first day to hit a jump at 120 to 130 feet, they've already jumped it at 80 to 90 feet. So it's not really that intimidating to them. Mm, yeah. So when the pros come up in the spring, it's actually really intimidating because we know that they're coming. So everybody gets their hype on and like, yeah, let's put, you know. 500 pounds of salt on something and build the lip up to six and a half feet and you're going to be you know 45 feet in the air and go for it Mm -hmm. you know that's they're seeing the end product and like they got to step up to the like the a game right off the bat and the other kids have been hitting it all year you know that's you know that's another difference for sure you know you mentioned that a lot of those times you guys were going back to the same spots but how often do you feel like you guys were out there exploring new zones. Oh, at the beginning, a lot. Um, we we would we would go everywhere. We would as soon as we find out about a new zone. This is before like Google Earth. We would go and check it out. Like like Giles was saying with the, our tape measures, we'd go out with our tape measures and and start looking and seeing what we could do in each zone. But as the jumps and the consequences got gnarlier, we tried to stay close to um, cell communication. Cell communication and then roads uh, and roads. That way, if something should happen, um, no one's going to die. Because um, that's what a lot of people don't realize is when most of the jumps that we shoot, one of us, if not both of us, know exactly the closest spot to go get cell coverage to get some, get help. Mm-hmm. You know, because there is a lot of consequence to this, whether people want to admit it or not. It's you know, stuff does get crazy. When did you guys? come to that realization that this stuff is super dangerous these these people these snow machiners are kind of putting themselves in mortal danger a lot of the time so you guys need to think ahead and find you know the closest cell reception you know how close is the closest road oh almost instantly you know because we're in a the iron worker trade and you know safety is a big big factor in in iron work even though everyone likes to get crazy and do do um, sketchy things at work, you still have to have a safety plan. You know, if you're a foreman, you, you're definitely going to start looking for 
the safest way to do any any kind of project, whether it's making movies or, or building something. Mm-hmm. So that we, we recognize that almost instantly. But but as far as traveling for terrain, it's weird. We actually we think we don't really go that far. But now when I've actually looked at what other people have done and you know where where their little zones and stuff are. I think that we looked around for stuff in a lot different ways than other people did because where we're extracting footage out of stuff is actually the stuff that people are riding right over. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, you know, a way that we changed, you know, like when we first started shooting in Whittier, people didn't really, they, they, they didn't think there was anything there, you know, and that's changed so much. And if, if you've ever been to Whittier and, you know, seen what, where we're filming in Whittier, you're, you're, you're less than four minutes away from the car. I mean, that's, that's kind of hard to believe, you know, when you see that kind of footage coming out of a place. I mean, like, you don't even, you don't even go to the bathroom up there. You go down to the, to the car and go to the bathroom in the parking lot where there's a bathroom. I mean, you're, you're that close. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, when people say like, oh, you got to go all these, all this distance and stuff like that. Hey, you know, whatever, that's, that's you guys' style, like the Valdez crew. And the, you know, I, I, I think that's cool, but, you know, I'm just not in for it. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about it, because we grew up watching uh, Mac Dog movies, and even the JB Deuce, they were hitting the five minute hit and the negative five minute hit and pulling mm-hmm. shots right off the road. Yeah, you know, and and Mac Dog, they're in the streets, and so we, you know, we kind of looked to, to that. We're like, wow, man, people are just they're. Do you want to drive twenty miles back into the backcountry to go find something when you're you're right next to the car? You can go get tools to make your sled go faster. You can go get another layer of clothing. It's interesting, too, because those those spots, you know, five minute, negative five, those spots would be hit by a lot of people. But then again, so would the spots that take a couple hours to get to, you know, in, in the backcountry. So that idea of exclusivity doesn't really even apply. Yeah. Speaking of the five minute hit, when do you think the last time the five minute hit was built? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. We, we drive by it all the time and keep thinking like, man, I can't believe the kids don't rebuild that jump. And like, that should be like, that should be the come up for, you know, backcountry snowboarding when you're young or skiing, whatever. I do remember when negative five was found though. And I think it might've been, um, and I hope I'm not incorrect in this, but Brian Pike, who used to work at Borderline. And he was like, I found this spot that we just park on the side of the road and we ride down to and there's so many different options and we went out there one weekend and we were just like oh my gosh this is such an amazing zone and we were talking about <laughs> you know bringing like a little barbecue and just like having having like a time there you know and it being so accessible yeah we when we when we first heard about negative 5 we went down there do you remember the name of that kid who we go? I can't remember who we went down there with. I don't know. Was I it mean, Bill, Bill though, might have been Bill though. But but anyways, Bill Preston, we, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, but uh, yeah, Pike, yeah, those guys were all down there. But I remember being like dumbfounded. Like, what was the kid that dressed like a uh, Mark uh, Thompson? He dressed Mark Thompson. Thompson. I think that's who we went down there with. Yeah, Mark Thompson. Yeah, and his little girlfriend, right? Yeah, yeah. And she went for it. Man, I remember I'd never seen a girl pack that hard before. I was like, whoa, that girl just literally went for a inverted trick to her head. And I was tripping out. Bina. 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 Yeah. yeah. Damn, you got a good memory. <laughs> yeah. And well, these are just, all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's how we kind of just we were, we like staying close to uh, to medical help and and also um, tools and because we roll um, you know big entourages so somebody's gonna break down somebody's gonna get hurt um, and if you got to tow a sled out it can turn into an epic an epic day can turn into like an epic journey getting a sled out of you know say you're up on some of the glaciers around here or something it's it's not really worth the risk to us well well like a crazy one is we went to um grant or um what's the place in denver electric mountain lodge what's, what's that called grand grand mesa in colorado to to film and we were down there for x games and uh the guy's like oh you got to drive so far to find jumps around here and they had a little ramp compound set up and i was like i kind of find that pretty hard to believe and i literally within that had to have been within less than a mile. Yeah, I'd, no, I'd way say, less. Yeah, I'd like say a less. Quarter mile. Quarter mile. A quarter mile of the lodge that we were staying at. I went out there and literally found a spot. And I don't know if most of who's going to be listening to this about how hard people know it is to build jumps in Colorado because the snow is so sugary. And I just went over there and drove around in a circle and compact all the snow the first day. And then the second day I went out there and built it by myself. And then uh, a couple of the kids that were there for X Games were like, oh, yeah, this thing's legit. Yeah, it was Bodine and uh, what was the kid from Canada? Ah, oh, man, I can't remember his name. Kid from Quebec. Yeah. And and Blaze was out there and Dane. Yep. And, yeah, and it turned it. out to be like a 135 foot jump through the, uh, the, the over, or sorry, the highway or the power lines. And it was a super sweet jump. It was actually one of the cooler jumps that we filmed the whole trip. Yeah, and the people that live there were tripping, like, wow, we never even looked at this terrain like this. I think that a lot of times it takes an outsider to be able to see that type of stuff. And I think that um, even the fact that you guys are from California, you come from a surf culture, I think that probably a lot of that motivation for doing turning and hardcore is kind of fighting against being an outsider. It's like we have to continuously prove ourselves. Yeah, I'd agree with that statement yeah. for sure. That that was uh, probably in the back of our minds most of the time, you know. And we were we had to make up for uh, not knowing how to use cameras, not knowing how to use a computer. Like before we started making these movies, I we I didn't even know the computers that have had evolved enough that you could edit on them. We had to I literally had to basically steal downloaded. Uh, uh, programs off the internet to you know to run our computers i mean we you know this is on the shoestring we didn't neither of us had ever even owned a computer i'd only used them in computer lab in college i mean yeah it was like truly like learning from the very very bottom well those programs were expensive too i remember oh, they're ridiculous um, yeah, it's 1200 bucks for final cut but then there was like three or four downloads so you'd always like share it with friends yeah well we were using um this is, the, you know, the outlaw days of the internet. We were using, what was that? Was it Napster that we'd get it? I can't remember. It was one of those, like, kind of pirate things. And so we just pirated everything. But then we didn't realize, like, how much, um, how many viruses and stuff were on stuff. So we'd have yeah. <laughs> so eventually we, got it. We, we eventually bought it um, just to avoid problems. And uh, I think we edited our first two or three movies on um, on PCs. And then we switched to Apple and and went pretty pretty legit mm -hmm. but in the beginning i don't know if you got if you if this is before you but i mean the the pcs actually were the first ones that you could edit um high definition 
And like, cause I th don't think Apple was able to use Final Cut didn't, we couldn't run our Panasonic cameras on high definition until, man, I want to say 90 or sorry, 2005, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Cause what was, what were we using on the PCs for, to edit? Uh, that Premiere program, Premiere, Premiere 5.0 or yeah, something, something like, that. like that. Yeah. People were like, Oh, you, you guys are ridiculous. But it, that was the only thing that would do high definition. Because I think we're the first people to really start shooting high definition. In the snow machine world. Yeah, in the snow machine world. You mean all together? Like out of everybody in the nation? Yeah, because see, see what happened was we were kind of getting sick of our cameras a little bit. And then there's this, there's there supposed to be this um, snow machine contest called Fuel and Fury up here. And they were like, yeah, we're going to switch over to high definition. And since my brother was shooting on a Bolex or had uh, time shooting 16 millimeter and knew the settings and stuff like that. That was when that Panasonic, what was the what was it? Panasonic? HVX 200s somewhere 200s, there? yeah, I think that's what they're called. And um, So we heard that that contest was gonna have to be shot in high definition. So we switched over that year and I bought I bought that Panasonic or- We, we both bought them. We, no, no, we, we just brought, had one. We only bought right. one because we couldn't afford two. And um, we switched over to shoot high definition that year. And then that we kept being told, like, yeah, you guys better sh sh switch to Apple because Apple's going to be the one to take over on this to shoot, you know, to, to edit this on. But they never got their act together by the springtime. And so we were still still on that Premiere program. And then so when Fuel and Fury came up, they couldn't even get that to work on high definition. And then but back at our house, we could actually do it since we were still on PC. So then that year we came out on high definition and nobody else had it. You know, because that was right when it was transferring over. Dang, that's pretty crazy. It, it's it's really cool to think that um, in so many ways, Alaska was ahead, you know, ahead in these these little like subcultures like snow machining yeah. or, you know, having a, a video in high definition because so often it's like Alaska is at least 10 years behind in fashion or this or that. Yeah, for, for sure. You know, and that was... Yeah, it is pretty cool, especially in the, the subcultures of stuff that you, you know, you get to, to be have the little come up, you know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, and you're, you're proud of it, too, because, you know, in the beginning, you know, we, well, and we were always the little guys, you know, we were never the big guys. I wanted to get back really quick to to some of these sessions that you guys had up there in turn again. What did those sessions look like when riders were hitting something huge or learning a new trick they were um it felt like everything was possible back then like we didn't know how big big was yet you know it started off like oh you're you're going over 100 and then it was like well that barrier has been broke you know and then every year somebody would come along and push the push the limits and um you know specifically like one year we met uh paul thacker mm -hmm. and he came out and his very first day at Turnigan, he set the world record for the longest distance jump. And, you know, so we, now we know, we know we're not really too, we weren't really too interested in filming anything over 200 feet, just because it's kind of, unless you can trick it, it's not really, you haven't really cleared it in our, in our mind. What do you mean by that? Like, I don't want to see somebody just go as far as they can. Like that's just kind of we we fell into that trap. Oh, we definitely bit. did, but we no, that's we were changed. trying to figure it out like what big was, 
but then we we just started scaling it back and we wanted to see more height and we wanted to see freestyle and style not just a a big huck but mm -hmm. but but to, to to go back a little bit to your question of what those sessions feel like when a really really big jumps put up and like especially when we're going to bring out a helicopter or when everybody knows like the lights are on when the lights are truly on it's it's exhilarating it's also terrifying, terrifying. um you're also blaze said this to me one time he's like yeah you guys the one thing you guys do is you like basically mind fuck me into thinking that i can get over this thing no problem and th there is a lot of that to it because you know that they can do it. You've done exactly what you needed to do. It's all measured out. You you know they have it. You know they have it in your mind. You're like, yeah, we won't send somebody over. Jumping. Yeah, you're not selling the guy to be. You're not telling some little kid over there that you've never seen jump. Like, oh yeah, go for it, dude. Yeah, you know, these are the kids you brought out. But you know, you know that you know it's almost like like anything where their their friends are there. They know, man, this this is this is about to get rowdy, but if I get over this, this is going to be a huge huge high. Yeah, mm -hmm. keep keep their confidence up. Keep, you know, make them make them well, mind fuck them basically. Yeah, yeah, you're mind fucking somebody. And then, <laughs> you know, as soon as they get over it, it can either turn into two things. It can either be like there's like a a stampede now to jump it because everybody's looking at it like it's fun. Or it's this big giant step back, and everybody's like, "Whoa, I'm not willing to cross that line. That is, that's beyond me right there." But on both of them, the cool thing about it is you're so high, like your your level of highness is. It's hard not. I mean, it's hard to even come home and like and like be around other people because you're so mentally high and so excited, and you can feel that energy of the crowd, or even if there's only five people there. I mean, the camaraderie. Mm -hmm. It's it's just ridiculous. Yeah, because those jumps would sometimes would take us two days to build. I mean, a good one. I don't know if you know what the 110 jump is. That's basically our kind of signature jump. It's the, one of the closest jumps to the road. And uh, Daniel Bodine came over with the duck from um, Sweden. Sweden. And right when he looked at that jump, he's like, I can flip that thing. And I've, it's called the 110 because it's normally a 110-foot jump. But he, now the way we build it, it's usually between 120 and 130 feet. And he talked all this shit like he's going to flip this thing, blah, blah, blah. So finally one day he's like, I'm flipping it right now. And it was snowing out. I mean, it was like terrible. And he goes for it and he shorted it just a little bit, smacked the thing, you know, on the, right on the, the roll. He stands up and English is his second language. He stands up, puts his finger in the air and he's like, I'm going again. And we're just like, whoa, 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 no, hold up, you know, hold up, you know, make sure you're okay. And like, get the snow off your pipes. And like, we were, I was terrified. And so he... He was like, no, I'm good, I'm good. And he, we cleaned his, everything up. He drove around, made sure his pipe was hot, everything. Went for it again, cleared it at 125 feet. Um, he just drove to, it, no problem, yeah. yeah. just drove to the parking lot after we celebrated for like 10 minutes and was like, yeah, let's just go party. And so we did that. And then we're like, well, we really want a shot of that when it gets clear out. And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. I, I've totally got that again. I'll flip it as soon as it gets clear. Well, it, the, the snow kept going and going for what, how many, two, three days? I don't yeah. know. Jimmy Blaze had a huge party at his house. You know, we just got throttled, you know, just crazy blowout party. And then the next day, of course, it's clear. And Bodine comes down. I mean, with the hangover from all hangovers, came down, talked a little bit of shit, flipped it. Went to the car and went to sleep. Yeah, went to the car and went to sleep. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I mean, there's there's multiple things that can happen at these jobs for sure. But yeah, there's there's high anxiety, high highs, low lows. Like you know, you can imagine the the lows when somebody gets really broke really off. broke off. It's I mean it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, you know, you said that 
when Bodine was was going back, you know, after he kind of knuckled it, and you guys were were a little frightened, you were a little scared. How often, if ever, were you guys scared for for other riders? Oh, we've stopped them. Yeah, yeah, for okay. sure, we've stopped them. Yeah. For sure, kind of a lot. And the more, the older I've gotten, and now that I have a child, um, I'm even more scared around it. Like that's one of the reasons why I'm not that into making movies anymore, just because the anxiety is so high. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely get stressed out. Like I, I'm, I think I'm a little bit more of a stressor than Giles is on on the, the situations. I, I try and eliminate. I try and spot any kind of potential problem and eliminate it before these jumps happen. And that's a, one of the reasons why we go back to the same jumps, just because we've we've figured them out. Yeah, there's a science to them. Yeah. And if I can see the thing hit when it's not going to be a catastrophic problem and fig- work, work out all the bugs early season and turn it into, you know, one of our, our jumps that we film on sunny days or when the sun's going down or what we call golden hour, we try and do that. You know, but then there's always the, you know, the natural kids that can hit natural jumps, which they don't seem to, I don't seem to stress around them as much. Yeah, the. Yeah, the kids that can hit natural terrain. That's that's like you know, a, Dan and Randy, those guys, and Johnny McMahon, McMahon, and um, those kids. They're I don't stress as much around them, and also the snowcross kids. I don't stress as much around. Yeah, I wish snowcross was still going on in Alaska. Sebastian, the other day when we were talking, you said that a big reason you got out of filming motorsports was because. One thing you don't want to be around is catastrophic injury. Was there a lot of that going on? Catastrophic injury? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, some yes. Yeah, when like when Jason Sumler broke his back flipping the road in Valdez for that um the Red Bull contest, I felt a lot of weight, you know. He was always cool about it, but I was just like, man, if I could have done that one over again, I would have stopped stopped him from hitting that. You know, but it was a perfect jump. It was set up. They were Sam Carver was throwing tricks at Will over it. I think Jason jumped it a few times, no problem. I, it, I mean, it was a sketchy jump just because there was a guardrail involved, so you had to get you had to clear it. But it was, I mean, the 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 math was right on it. Like it was a perfect freestyle jump. It was right at 110, 115 feet. And when he broke his back, and I didn't think he was going to walk again, I, I was. I was freaked out. I mean, he he would stay at our house. He was a good friend of mine, still is a good friend of mine. And, you know, meet his parents in the hospital. And he had to get a uh, medevac to Anchorage and spend a year in a tortoise shell. Clamshell, yeah. And, you know, that was that took its toll, you know. And then when Thacker got hurt, he didn't get hurt with us um, when he, when he um, lost the use of his legs. But he did get hurt with us on, on a flip jump. And got a pretty pretty good scar on his face. Broke a bunch of ribs. Like a gnarly scar on his face. That was eye opening. And me. I was I was I was just like, man, I don't know, man. This is this is for uh, what? Yeah, I, I didn't know what to think. You know, because most of the parents like that you'd meet in ERs, they were they were used to their kids getting hurt all the time. These are high risk kids, you know. And I, Giles and I grew up. You know, with skateboarding, we were we were into high risk. We were into getting gnarly, and uh, so I just yeah, I kind of lost my 
I don't know, my, my will to, to make these jumps happen. Before those situations, did you, did you think that those things couldn't happen or maybe you were just putting it out of your mind? I was putting it out of my mind for sure. Okay. You know, just like stepping up to any big jump. You, you put the, you want to think, yeah, you want to think about making it, not wrecking, mm-hmm. you know? So I would try and like, not, I try not to show that emotion when I'm around those jumps. Cause I don't want to spook anybody or, you know, get them out of their head, you know, put them in the head and, but I, it definitely goes through my mind constantly. And I would imagine seeing all the successful attempts or all the successes outweigh, you know, kind of that catastrophic injury. And then so when you're up there and they're hitting these just enormous jumps, the pool that you're drawing from is majority successes. You know, it's not those those injuries. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's right. Just it's, it's like big park jumps on snowboards. So like they can be open to the public and most kids know, you know, whether they got it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, it, get, it can get gnarly when, you know, when um, multiple um, rotations or, you know, the amplitude of the tricks change, you know, you can get lost in the air. And so those type of things or, mechan- you know, mechanical failures can be the, the the biggest one of the biggest problems. Like if any kids are out here listening about flipping snow machines, I, I say this all the time and nobody wants to listen. But, man, have the springs on your skis. So if, if you come around even to say six and a half o'clock, you're going to make it. When he says springs on the ski, do you know, do you know what he's saying? No. Could you explain that? That means you, you're, you're tying a spring down from the, the ski loop to, to your spindle, to your spindle, which pulls your skis up. But then the weight, when you're actually down on the ground, holds them flat to the snow. But as soon as you go up in the air, they're pulled up to the, you know, as far back as they can, almost like, you know, like you just hit something. So you don't have to rotate as far. Okay. And so it, it adds another layer of like cushion. Yep. And then I like to see everybody in a tech vest. Obviously I want them in good helmets. Um, mouthpieces. Mouthpieces, you know, and, and, you know, and Dane was one of, he was kind of one of the first guys that really was just like, he would, he doesn't jump without a, without a tech vest, you know, and all these things we kind of learned along the way because we didn't snow cross. How do you think that those injuries affected the THC crew? Man, I don't know. I Everyone was so young, you know, so they were just like, oh, man, that's just the way it is. You know, and it's motorsports mentality. You know, you, if you're getting into motorsports, you know you're going to get hurt. You know, so sooner or later, you know, even even the best guys get hurt. I mean, look at look at Levi, man. He, he wadded up on him on the world record jump and was in the hospital for a Blair Morgan doesn't walk. Yeah. The, the best guys, I mean, one of the things that, that kind of opened my mind a little bit on it is the guy that plows our snow down here, his kid. Um, his brother. Oh, was his brother's kid, Coulter. His, oh, his that Coulter. Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I thought you were talking to someone else. Yeah, he, um, when, when he broke his back on the squirrel huck, um, was it? it was a squirrel huck, right? Driving to it. Oh, that's right. I thought he was going over it. But anyways, it was, you know, one of those days where everybody was pretty hyped up. Um his mom was like, yeah, don't even worry about it. We knew this was going to happen from the beginning. And, you know, there's nothing. We couldn't stop it. And, man, that was kind of eye-opening to me. It was like, whoa, you're, you mean, you know, the, like Sebastian was saying, you know, the, this is high risk, you, you know, high risk behavior. You know, it's going to happen no matter what. I mean, whether a camera's on it or not, it's, 
you know, kids love to get gnarly, you know? So I think a lot of that is pushed out of people's minds because when, you know, when you're younger, you just don't even, you know, it isn't going to happen to you. It's going to happen to the other guy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was some, definitely some like, Hey, you know, this is, this is kind of going a bad way, but we just never felt that crazy, crazy pushback that I just now, when I look back on it, like that they're kind of, it's like, it's surprising like that there wasn't more of. And I wonder if that was because, or if, if the fact that there was less people involved in it back then plays, plays anything into it. Because now I feel like, um, at least with snowboarding, you have so many people involved in it now. I mean, there's just like, it's, it's to the point of like oversaturation of like really talented riders and things are kind of down to to a science and so when you get more people involved in something i feel like you get more perspectives and so maybe nowadays you wouldn't run into a parent who's so understanding yeah, yeah. and also you got the internet yeah yeah you know well, for and, sure. and all sports have gotten safer like look at airbags um foam pits you know none of that existed when we started making these movies and it was also you know, I look back to like the early days of skateboarding or even snowboarding or, you know, we, the people that come first, they got to get gnarly. Yeah. And push it. And, and, you know, we're the, we were the, the precursors. So it, um, the guinea pigs. Yeah. And, and so those t type of people that, that find sports like that and are drawn to it, they, they, you know, look at like Shane McConkey, you know, they, they, no one knew how, what big was. You know, or what the right equipment was. We didn't know. You know, and that's also, but I mean, that goes back to all things. Pioneering anything is always pioneering something. I mean, you're 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 ultimately doing something that's really not not that smart, or I shouldn't say not that smart, not that safe. You know, it's not until the people come behind you that it actually starts to get safer, and you know, people that have I don't know less, a little bit less of that go for it attitude start you know changing the 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 whole culture of it you know, to make it safer. Mm -hmm. I mean, even Rippy, when he learned it, when he first flipped this, the, the first snow machine, I mean, that, he was on a pile of junk. He wadded it, what, seven or eight times before he, he got away, made it, you know, but he was a cat, so he could, you know, he was used to wrecking. So he, he got out of that unscathed, basically, you know, but then when Quinlan went for it, what did it take him? 11, I don't know, it was a lot, a lot of, of tries. And, you know, but he was a cat too, you know, and he got away from it pretty Pretty lucky. Pretty unscathed, really. And I mean, he was doing that without a tech vest. Both those guys were. None of that was. It wasn't until Blaze started jumping into water that it actually started changing a little bit. Where it was like, hey, let's let's do let's learn this a little bit safer, and let's let's flip into water first, and then flip into foam, and then flip. You know. How long did that last? The the flipping into water. Just a season, I think. Yeah, just like a season. Yeah, and then that year, foam pits kind of came along. But nobody had the money to get foam up here because it's so expensive to transport foam. So even the kids now, like Tom Davis, he learned how to flip into foam. And you just go to the lower 48 and you find somebody with a foam pit that you can rent or use. And you learn in the correct and, and the safest way possible and then then take it to the snow. Mm -hmm. You know, something that that I think about often is is Alaska and it's distance from the rest of the rest of the world. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, so many of these guys you were riding with at the time were at 
the same level, if not a higher level than pros in the industry at that time. I wonder if you guys feel like because they were in Alaska, so far removed from all the competitions and the snow machine companies and all of the other industry stuff, do you think that that blocked them in any way from reaching their full potential in the industry? For sure. For sure. I mean, I think that was our, our case for sure. And then, um, you know, but those movies, those put the kids out there and they knew like they, they got to go to X games and, you know, for a while, half of X games was Turnigan kids, you know, so it, you know, and the internet was coming around. And so you could send, um, send your clips to whoever you needed to send your, basically your video resume to whoever needed to see it. And you could get not necessarily some financial support, but you could get into the contests. Mm -hmm. But you had to go down there and do those competitions. Yeah. Not just the competitions. It was, they were forced to go down to, you had to go to the trade shows, you know, and that was, that was pretty expensive. And, but, but you, I mean, you're kind of nailing it. I mean, the way I looked at it, it was, we just kind of lucked out and we got the biggest fish, not just in the pond, but in the sea, but they were actually living in the smallest pond. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the other thing too, though, is they got to, you know, living in Alaska, especially down in South Central. I mean, there's two film companies down here and they could, you know, with an hour from the house, they, they were at the best spot with the, you know, the photographers that could put the most amount of cameras on them, mm -hmm. you know, and that wasn't necessarily true with, you know, say people living in Bozeman or, you know, anywhere in the Midwest that were snow machining, you know, that's, they, they a little bit had an advantage, I would say, but, but at the same token, the, their ceiling was a lot lower just because, you know, what are you going to do? Are you just going to go on the road and miss the whole winter and live in, live out of a van in you know, the Midwest and go to trade shows, you, you know, then you can't really do what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I have some questions from the crude Instagram followers that I mentioned earlier, like in the very beginning of this conversation. Um, I'm going to ask a few now and then I'm going to ask a few later. Ben Cruz wanted me to ask you. <laughs> What's up, Ben? <laughs> why do you think there were so many guys throwing down on sleds in those early days versus now? I, 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 I think it could have gone two ways. I think one was because we built the hype. We created a scene like it was you could go you could if you put the work in you could go to the, the to the fourth avenue theater with your piece of chicken and watch um watch your your movie and everyone's gonna cheer and you were a hometown hero basically in a in a film that stands up against any any snow machine film that that was being made at the time you know those those you you look back to those turning and hardcore movies like they still stand up in, as far as amplitude Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, guys like Ben Cruz, he was, he was gnarly. He still is gnarly. He, um, you know, even though he was like a second tier rider, the, he, he got to stand right next to the jumps and see him happen and be like, all right, I got this, you know, and the, the, the camaraderie, like if you're rolling with our crew, you were, you were in, it didn't matter if they were fighting with each other in the parking lot, you know, Giles and I were older than them. We didn't give a shit. Like, Dude, I don't care if you guys hate each other. Keep your helmets on. You know, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter to me, man. We're there to make a movie and make you guys look good. I mean, that was that was the that was, that was all there was to it. Yeah, like sometimes I I wondered now if uh, my brother and I were taking our winners off just to uh, make just a film, even if we were just handing the footage over to um, 
kids for you know Instagram or whatever they want to put their stuff out on or even to make their own little movies um, if, if there still would be a scene going on I, I really don't know but as soon as we pulled away you know the it kind of just lost a little bit of direction or at least that's the way I feel because we keep you know hey where are these kids coming up you know I, I don't know maybe there's kids in other spots doing stuff I've kind of lost touch to that mm-hmm. and there's a little resurgence right now I would say you know with Warren Gage and Nick Feo, is that his last name? Yeah. I hate to get these names wrong. They're all little kids, basically, to me. Um, they're they're kind of making things happen, but it's, you know, in the day of in this day and age with Instagram, it's just a whole different scene. You know, you're we we used to call our big shovels jump for monies. Now we call them <laughs> <laughs> now we call them light getters. <laughs> you know, so it's it's just a different different way to. Uh, put yourself out there and it's probably going to take a little time for it to, um, to go the direction that it's going to end up being. Well, well, and also, I don't know, you know, I mean, are are people, does a, you know, a a guy like me, that's a a snow machine enthusiast. Do I want to follow a bunch of, you know, 20 to 26 year old kids on Instagram to get, you know, seven shots a year out of them. You know, I, I don't know if that's the best way to put footage forward as far as to like, see the whole, you know, where the, the whole state's going to get behind people. Because, you know, when movies used to come out, you, you know, there's guys that I work with that I, I would have never thought watched our movies at Cabins up in Petersville. They're like, oh, yeah, man, I remember that. My kid brought that thing along and we watched that movie a hundred times. You know, they're not going to do that on Instagram. I think there needs to be a unified front with snow machiners, snowboarders, you know, in, in their individual subcultures to continue to push these movies because movies are still movies. People are still going to theaters, right? Like that, that culture really hasn't changed. The only difference between like action sports movies and their popularity versus like, you know, the new Marvel movie is that, uh, Marvel or Disney is, is putting a lot of marketing into that. Right. And, and they have a place to go to. So I think that it's still very relevant. I think that it's, it it could still happen. Yeah, someone just needs to grab a hold of a camera and and start making it happen. Um, you know, and like we were talking before we started this podcast about how much work goes into just a podcast. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into these movies. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, whether that's getting music rights, uh, computer issues, camera issues, um, you know, everything's just gotten so expensive too. I mean. Your editing soft well, editing software's gotten cheap, but the hardware part is still expensive. Yeah, I would have really liked to have seen um, the guys that did uh, Winter Project. I really wish they would have stayed doing Winter Project, where they, you know, they had multiple people that were actually in the film industry or in you know uh, video production, anything like that, and to to work as a team, as a collective on on something because mm-hmm. it's almost gotten to the point where it's it's pretty hard to do as just a you know, a mom and pop shop, basically, you know, a, a brother team that d- don't really do this for a living, you know, because all those guys, they actually own their own cameras and work in studios and that kind of thing. And something like that would actually really, really help, you know, and even in the snowboard industry, too, or, or you know, Alaska snowboard, for sure. Yeah, because I thought that was a good movie, especially for their first snow, snow machine movie, like especially on a terrible year for snow. I thought it was great. Mm hmm. Yeah, it was definitely documentary heavy, which was definitely a little different than say uh kind of the the fast 
editing of a skate or snow machine or snowboard video. But I think that that's uh, maybe that's the direction that it needs to go in. I think that's a good thing because I think it brings older people involved in it because I think a lot of people are kind of just sick of just watching porn because you can watch porn on 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 your phone. You know, but for a movie, you know, you know what I'm saying? Not <laughs> porn porn, but, you know, ski porn or whatever. It's yeah. Like, I thought we were talking about snow machining. <laughs> yeah, like, like jump porn, basically. Yeah, jump porn, yeah. you know, like just, you know, just quick. Just banger after banger. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that's getting harder and harder to film just because the um, the parameters of the jump are, jumps are basically kind of set in stone now. You know, I mean, yes, there will be outliers that are going to go for even bigger and better jumps, but those are just, you know, if, if it can't kill you, nobody's going to watch it. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people do want to know, like, you know, I, I get people still ask me to this day at work, wherever, wherever I run into them, you know, what's that dude like? What's this guy like? You know, I would like to see that. And I, I like that about the, um, the, the winter project, you know, I thought that was really cool to get a, a grasp on, you know, like how, how everybody, you know, where they're coming from, mm-hmm. you know, cause really all you need is, you know, for a minute and a half segment, you only need two bangers and then, you know, someone talking some shit a little bit that's good on a mic. And that that's hilarious. You know, I'll watch that all day long. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially anybody that's really good in front of it. I mean, leave them on there longer and, you know, talk about our sport. I don't care. You know, something interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish that. Yeah, I would like to see that come back because I, I truly, truly. I really miss premieres. Yeah, I really miss premieres. Bad. Yeah. You know, even out of state companies, all that stuff. I mean, I w- we went and saw. What did we see last year down there? Was it last year or the year before in Montana? What was that one? Return to Sender. Yeah, Matchstick, you know, like, you know, it was a full movie theater, a local movie theater. It was fun. You know, just watching little kids be just being stoked to see people be on snow. Yeah, I think they're going to come back. I really do. Especially after, you know, this pandemic where people are kind of starved for face-to-face interaction. I mean, you know, we could be ripe for it. But the the yeah. other problem I see, too, is like, um, especially for snowboarding, is Travis Rice, like, dude, he's a bad motherfucker. But like, dude, you you shouldn't have to have to have a film a helicopter to film your helicopter. <laughs> you know, and I, I I'm not talking shit on his movies. I love them. I've watched them all a million times. I you know I think they're the best movies. But if you're it, that's hard to compete with if when you're a kid thinking like, oh, that's the way we need to do it. You know, because I mean, who's who's got rebel money? Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's a different type of snowboarding too, right? So you you can have the uh, uh, think think type of snowboarding where you can go outside and find a traffic cone or whatever, right? Like it's very accessible. Um, whereas that type of snowboarding is you you have to almost be like a superhuman or or like a daredevil, you yeah. know? Like it's that that's a different type of person to me. Which, which is fine, right? Like, I think that that type of person, a half pipe rider, and then kind of the urban snowboarder, you know, what's really cool is, in my opinion, snowboarding has uh, been sectioned off into these genres, which is super fun because you can now be like, oh, I, I really like watching the Daredevil Travis Rice stuff and, and these type of, like you said, these superhuman snowboarding. Um, or you could be like, you know what? I, I like to watch Scott Stevens you know, jump around on a couch. And, and that, that was like simplifying it because that dude is really, really good. But his type of snowboarding is, is like night and day from Travis Rice. Yeah. And I think you, you're, you're, you're kind of hitting it on the head because surfing's kind of gone that way. Like you can watch, 
you can get more um like I don't I don't I, I could care less about watching Kyle Lenny go down a, a fifty foot wave at Nazare, but I can definitely get down on watching um Dane Reynolds shred overhead reef, you know, to pieces in with marine layer and gray out uh all day long to you know whatever music he chooses mm-hmm. and i i'd way rather get down with that and so i think i think there's something something to be said for that you don't need you don't need a helicopter to film your helicopter <laughs> that's like what that. i'm saying yeah but now but now we can just get drones to film drones yeah exactly or a drone to film a helicopter yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay so hayden wright asks what did you think of Joey Bob Junker when you first met him? Oh, I loved him instantly. Like with that, I had to ask him if that was his real last name. Yeah, we didn't. We, I think we put his name down wrong in the first one. We called him Junker Joey because we we just thought that that was his nickname. Yeah, because he was living in Juno back then, and um, uh, what was the guy's name down in Juno that was filming for us? Maybe Scott Baxter. Scott, yeah, Scott, Scott Baxter, yeah. And uh, so he filmed him doing a water crossing down. Um, someplace down on the canal there and uh sent us out oh, okay sweet put put it in the movie and we put his name like Giles said as as junker joey and then he moved to anchorage the next year and um and he's just such a redneck i mean like him working at ass i mean he'd just go in there and just covered in grease and he's just like <laughs> such a redneck and so yeah we we instantly like and then he was he there's some riders that love being filmed, and then there's other riders that just love snow machining. And he's one of those guys that just loves snow machining. You know, yeah, he likes getting filmed, but he he'd still he's still he'll snow machine without a camera. That's awesome. Yeah, and he, actually, he was one of the the when you talked about that earlier about finding new zones. I remember that was always something that was kind of cool about going with him. Is he would always go out on the shitty days and find new spots. And there was actually a bunch of spots that I went to with him that. I'd never even heard of that were even legal to snow machine in. And yeah, they were totally open. It was good to go. I mean, it was pretty cool. And he, yeah, you'd go out with him and, you know, you could go out with him and it could just be me, Sebastian. And, you know, especially back when he was dating Carly, I mean, it was like just the four of us and we'd go out and just get clip after clip with him. You know, and that, like we were saying earlier, he, he can hit naturals, you know, and he's smooth and doesn't wreck and is calculated and, Everything runs good. Yeah, he's, his sled was always in good condition, and and we didn't have to stress about hauling him out of places. You know, he just had it. Yeah, Junker's cool. Yeah, yeah, Junker rules. Yeah, he does. He does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I even feel safe in his boat when we're sliding across rocks and, you know, tiny little, are they streams or rivers that those little boats use? Creeks. <laughs> yeah, they're creeks, basically. You know, and he's just he's just good at anything with the throttle, it seems like. Hell, he's even a good snowboarder. Yeah. Okay, so Aaron Gate asks, how big was the trade-off between your writing and your filming, and was it worth it? Um, well, this was pretty funny. The first year that we made Turnigan Hardcore, we would hit every jump that any kid would hit. And we would we'd be like, okay, if you'll hit it, we'll hit it, or we'll hit it first, and then you can keep hitting it or whatever. And then um, the next year when we met, um, well, no, that kind of started to end with, with Kyle Armburst. We still hit every jump with him, but we knew, like, oh, man, this kid's way better than we are. And then we got, we just got really into making movies, you know. It was like, I, we were, I think we turned 30 at that point, and it was just like, man, it's kind of, kind of more fun to capture it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, but the one thing that other filmers have always said when they come and ride with us, like, well, you guys are actually snow machiners. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you guys actually love to go snow machining. And we still do. I mean, shit, yesterday we went out and we built a jump for Giles' little five-year-old nephew, you know, in, the, in a snowstorm. So we, we go, we still snow machine all the time. You know, it's still just snow machine to snow machine, too. I mean, but a lot of days we don't bring anything but just, just us rooping around. You know, it's it's still it's still the sport. Mm-hmm. So I just realized, I think I'm just going to ask you all of these Instagram questions and then end with my final question, if that's cool with you guys. Yeah, no problem. So Manchild asks, <laughs> what, what are your feelings on keeping at 90? Keeping at 90? <laughs> like straight up? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Uh, man, we, we, we do it all. I mean, anybody that hangs out with us knows that that's how we roll. <laughs> like, he's a dad now. I bet he'd be terrified to hang with us. <laughs> but you guys are dads, aren't you? Just I am. Giles okay. is have a kid. I do. She's actually in a border cross right now. Oh, right on. That's awesome. <laughs> Okay, so Megan and Michael Flanagan ask, any advice for parents of two redheads? One's a nine-year-old boy and the other's a six-year-old girl. Get them lots of exercise. Yeah, keep sunblock on them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're one percenters, so um, yeah, try not to let them kill each other. <laughs> okay, and Hayden Wright asks, what do you think of the next generation of turn, turnigan riders? I think the world of them, man. We've been riding a lot with this guy named uh, Warren Gage, and uh, there's this running joke called Mr. Turnigan. And like, if, if you do something that day, like last year he flipped his first flip of his first flip ever, I think, was the opening day at Turnigan off a of natural, and so he was Mr. Turnigan that that week or that day or whatever. And so I think it's in good hands, you know, it's, um, there's a, there's a whole crew of kids coming up and they just need a little direction and, well, they don't even need direction. What they need is just to just keep snow machine and keep sending it. Yeah, there, there, there's plenty of good kids out there for sure. There may be a, a little dip right now in the, the snow machine, what's, you know, not next games or whatever, blah, 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 but that, that doesn't matter. You know, this is still Alaskan sport. You know, these kids are starting off riding into their cabins with their dads or moms or whatever. And, you know, they're looking at tiny little jumps in the beginning and then jumping over, you know, doubles on the trail. And, yeah, they're, there's still a bunch of really, really good kids out there. You know, and us, us old timers, we're, we're still around, you know. They can roll up to us and if they, especially parents, they're like, well, we don't know exactly, you know, we can we can kind of set them straight, you know, like a lot of like snow cross parents, especially they're like afraid that their kids are going to get hurt jumping, but you go to a snow cross and the ambulance will come three or four times on a snow cross and the ambulance hardly ever comes with us. Mm-hmm. Now that you guys are older and you're able to look back on everything in maybe a more objective way, do you guys ever miss those days? I wouldn't say I miss them. I miss having not that many. I, the one thing that I'm like kind of bummed that we, we did do um, is we, we just put Turnigan on blast. Like we had that place to ourselves for a long time and now it's crowded. And I don't know if that would have happened with or without us. You know, but we, I think we, what we, we really showed people 
the people that were paying attention, like really how to use that mountain. And since it's so close to Alieska, it, uh, it's turned into a, a, a ski, ski and snowboard spot more than a snow machine spot. Okay. So that's, that's definitely been a little bit of a, which hey, I'm in for it. I, I like people going out snowboarding. I like people going out skiing. I'm not saying it like that. It's just, you know, it's, it just gets a lot of pressure now. I miss the, definitely miss the old days on that. But the, the only time that I really look back is when I'm working, let's say on a Wednesday and it's clear out and I'm uh, freezing my ass off, stuffing bolts and holes or whatever the hell I got to do that day. Um, yeah, I truly, truly miss those days. Truly miss those days. Yeah, and the camaraderie. Like, yeah. We don't get to see our, our snow machine family as much as, as we used to and get to really hang and, you know, spend them. Spend days in the parking lot in enclosed trailers or motorhomes, drinking beers with the crew and, you know, or building jumps. Building jumps is a really good way to, you know, there should be podcasts next to building jumps just because what is said and, you know, you spend six hours in a box of beer with, with a group of kids or adults even building a jump that everybody's terrified of, but no one wants to really talk about. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's pretty, it's a bonding experience really. You get to, you know, I don't know these kids in, in in life really i only know them in snow machining like i don't know their girlfriends generally i don't know their much about them until i build a what they do for a living yeah you know we don't you have no clue mm -hmm. it reminds me there's a surf movie out and i love the name of it and it reminds me of building kickers when they're getting gnarly it's called nervous laughter and that's what i always think about when you're around it because everybody's as you're building the jump you can see everybody's starting to get stressed and oh, the closer man. it gets yeah. to being finished everyone starts stressing yeah i definitely miss that definitely miss that well, guys, that's that's it for my questions. Um, next time I'm I'm in Girdwood, how about we uh, we all hang out and have a Miller High Life? <laughs> that sounds good, man. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. good. <laughs> At least, we'll each do a twelve pack. <laughs> well, do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? No, just stay tuned. We got a big announcement coming up in I don't know late March, big one. Yeah. So um. So there may be yeah there might be something in store for us and um, and just uh, yeah we'll leave it at that. We're not really allowed to talk about it yet. Yeah, we, yeah we got to stay quiet on it. Just yeah, keep your ears open. Come late March, or something big's coming. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 